Welcome to Song and Plants. My name is Carmen Porter. I am joined by Dr. Margarita Lopez Uribe from Penn State University. We will be discussing all things related to squash bees. Her knowledge on the subject is astonishing, and the research coming out of her lab is groundbreaking. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Hello, welcome to Song and Plants. I'm joined today by Margarita Lopez Uribe. Thank you for joining us. Would you like to introduce yourself, please? Hi, Carmen. Thank you so much for the invitation. My name is Margarita Lopez Uribe. I'm an assistant professor in entomology at Penn State University. And I'm, I am also the extension specialist on pollinator health here at Penn State. Amazing. So I'd really like to talk about Pepinapis prunosa. There are many generalist bees. How common is the Pepinapis prurinosa level of specialization? And what opportunities and insights does this allow for researchers? Yeah, that's a, that's a very interesting question because I think that or better understanding the biology of these squash bees really challenges these preconceived ideas that we have about bee biology. So when we talk about bees, most people immediately think honey, uh, large social insect colonies, insects that go to a great diversity of flowers to look for pollen and nectar. And here we have squash bees, which are kind of like the complete opposite in, in so many ways, right? So they are solitary. They only have one female in the nest. They're only active for like about six to eight weeks of the year. And they are narrow specialists. And so they exclusively collect pollen from one plant genus. So there are a lot of fascinating questions about these bees, the question of a specialization is really interesting because the current hypothesis is that the ancestor of bees or, you know, like the first lineages of bees were actually specialists, right? So when we look at different lineages of bees and we look at those lineages that are kind of like closer to the ancestors of bees, in general, those tend to be specialists. But then the generalized diet breath is something that evolved multiple times. And then it is very common in the lineages that are most species rich. And so this is why it is very common to think of, you know, bees as generalists, even though the primitive stage is specialized diets. One of the, one of the tricky things is that, of course, these specialized bees are less common or less abundant because all of this is going to depend on how abundant the floral resource is. So what it, it makes the squash bees very interesting and kind of like a perfect model system is that they are associated with plants that we cultivate. And so they can, for example, in the case of Eusurapeponapis prinosum, this bee is very, very, very abundant in a large 
portion of the United States and, you know, like Southern Canada, in part because they use these plants that we cultivate, right? So a lot of specialist bees, a number of species we think are conservation concerned, right? Because the, the, the habitat is not there for the plants to, you know, like um, support them. But in the case of a squash bee, we have a specialist, which is less common among bees, but the plant that they use is very abundant because it's a cultivated plant. So it's relatively easier to study. That's fascinating. So talking about the squash, would you mind giving me a brief squash history, how they branched out, how they evolved? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So squash is kind of like the common name that we use for plants in the genus Cucurbita, right? And really there are a few common names. So it's like a squash or pumpkin of gourds, right? Like we use those names for different species. They are a plant genus that is native to the New World, right? Like they are all from um, the Americas. The hypothesized center of origin is Mexico. That's where we see the highest diversity of a species of, of cucurbita. And then we do have some, you know, species that move south. So there is a lineage of cucurbita that is native to South America. And then some species that move kind of like north of Mexico. So, for example, there are uh, native cucurbita to, for example, Florida. There is a lineage there that is endemic from that part of the U.S. A couple of other interesting things about cucurbita is that when thinking about the evolution of these plant genus, that are kind of like these two major lineages. So one is really adapted to deserts, and that's what we call the xeric clade or group. For example, right now I have colleagues who are, you know, in Arizona, in the deserts in Arizona, looking for these plants that are that are like three or four really abundant species in the southwest of the U.S., and they are completely adapted to that climate. And then the other lineage is the mesic uh, lineage that is more adapted. I wouldn't say necessarily like a tropical rainforest, but more like mild temperatures and, you know, humidity. And the second lineage is where we have had uh, multiple independent origins of domestication, right? So basically humans have selected a lot of these species in the more mesic areas and have domesticated them for a number of reasons. So another interesting thing is that cucurbita, not all the species of cucurbita have been domesticated because they were necessarily a source of food, right? Like they were not used as a source of food, but they, they were used as containers, for example, by some of the native populations. And so, yeah, it's, it's a fascinating story of a plant that has many times throughout our history attracted humans. And we have this very tight interaction between the genus Cucurbita and us. Yeah, I grow three different species of squash. And I was looking at the phylogeny to see how closely they're related. And especially it's relevant when doing things like cross-pollination. And I was really surprised to see that Muschata is more closely related to Pepo than it is to Maxima. Was Maxima domesticated before Pepo and Muschata? Were they all domesticated independently? in different locations? 
Yeah, so they, they were definitely domesticated in different locations because the wild ancestors of these plants had distributions that were not sympatric. Basically, they did they don't have overlapping distributions, right? So their distributions are disjunct. Cucurbita maxima is from South America. So is, you know, a species that was domesticated there. We have a pretty good idea of the wild ancestor. Machat is kind of a puzzle because we don't really have a good idea of what what was the species that was the wild ancestor. It's a species that was grown in Central America, like Mesoamerica, more, you know, widely. It is unclear if the distribution of the wild ancestor of that plant actually included South America, because it is a plant that is grown in Colombia, where I am from, actually, actively. It's a very common plant. So another thing that may be confusing about Cucurbita is that even though there are like 20 plus species, the diversity of cultivars is absolutely amazing, right? So within Cucurbita pepo, there must be dozens of different cultivars. And when you look at the fruit, they are so different. It would be hard to predict or to think that they are actually genetically very similar. And likely the diversity of cultivars is the result of this very close relationship with humans and different populations of humans have domesticated this plant different because I guess, you know, one of your questions was like, when did the domestication happen? For example, Cucurbita pepo was first domesticated in Mexico. It was one of the first domestication events, right? Like about 10,000 years ago uh, with beans and corn, they were part of this milpa system. But then when these plants were brought to, for example, Europe, there were domestication events that happened there, right? So for, for example, zucchini, something that was not domesticated in the New World, it was kind of a later domestication that happened outside of the Americas. And then the outcome is a fruit that is completely different. So it's, you know, it's very, when we say domestication, it's kind of this very dynamic, because, you know, it's a process and it can happen in different time frames and have very different outcomes. Absolutely. And different people will select for different things. I learned in the podcast last week that the naked seated pumpkins are from Europe. So they were selecting for a hullless seed, which is a unique trait. So what are some of the morphological differences between domesticated and wild squash? Yeah, so I don't have as much experience with cultivar diversity, but we have done a lot of work with the different species. So the different species definitely look phenotypically very different. Some, for example, have very dense trichomes on the trichomes are like hairs that are on the leaves, right? Some have like, for example, the leaves may have white marks, right? Like between the species, there are a lot of differences. The question of how are wild and domesticated species different is something that we have more specifically studied comparing flowers because we study, you know, like the bees. So I don't have a lot of experimental data to tell you how other parts of the plants are different, but comparing the flowers, we have learned that definitely the process of domestication has led to very significant changes in the phenotypes of the flowers. So again, each domestication event is different. They have resulted in, you know, like very different outcomes of the breeding associated with the domestication. But we find some overall 
patterns, right? So one of the things that we see is that in general, the flowers of domesticated species tend to be more open and larger, right? So basically the flowers look bigger in the domesticated species. The other thing that we have found is that the smells of the flowers are kind of like simplified in domesticated flowers, right? And this is not as important for us. For us, visual cues are more important. But for pollinators, that is something that really matters. So one of the the things that we consistently see is that in general, domesticated flowers have reduced array of perfumes that they produce. We have also looked at pollen and nectar. For nectar, we see, you know, very clear differences with more like watered down nectar. So in general, the volume is larger, but the concentration of sugars decreases with domestication. And for pollen, you know, it's really interesting because pollen is a very important source of food for bees. So when we were talking about a specialization earlier in, during the interview, we were talking about a specialization for pollen, right? Like, so pollen is this reward that plants produce, but really pollen is the sperm of the plants, right? It is a very important part of the kind of the reproductive cycle of the plant. So even though we often think of pollination as these mutualistic interaction where, you know, like the flowers are producing these free resources for uh, the pollinators, the plants sometimes protect those resources. And so it is not uncommon for pollen to be chemically protected. And in cucurbita, it's not totally understood why, you know, how is it that the plants are protecting the pollen, but the pollen of cucurbita is not something that most bees like. So there are very few groups of bees and, and, you know, in general insects that are going to consume that pollen. So pollen is, is this very important resource and And one of the things that we know about the interaction between bees and plants is that bees have very specific requirements for the ratios of protein and lipids in pollen. So when we looked at the cucurbita of the wild and domesticated flowers, we actually see that this is one of the aspects that is very conserved. The ratios between pollen and lipids do not change between, you know, like domesticated and wild, but the sugars do change. So it seems like, you know, sugars, both in nectar and pollen, according to our research in in, in this group, seems to be a trait that changes more easily or is associated with changes in the process of domestication, while these important sources of really nutritional, you know, like uh, aspect of the pollen for bees is pretty conserved. Wow. Because of the difference in the sugars, have you found that there's a preference for the bees? Do they do they have a tendency to go to the wild over the domesticated types? We have been doing some experiments to try to understand how these changes that we see in the flowers impact or, you know, what is the translation for bee behavior? So one of the things that we have seen for squash bees is that they actually tend to like the diluted version of the nectar, right? So they they have a preference for flowers with, you know, more diluted sugars, but there are other aspects of the flowers that they prefer in the wild floral phenotype. I think that these signals are, are used by the bees in different, you know, like 
points of their interaction, right? So for example, the volatiles are likely being used to for like long distance attraction. And so in general, you know, they like more perfumes because they can probably sense them better. But once they are closed, whether they decide to actually drink nectar or not may be driven by other things like the concentration of sugars or actually the morphology of the flowers is another thing that they, they care a lot about. So your question is very interesting and it's an, an active, you know, like question that we have ongoing in the lab, especially because one of the things that is coming more clear, and this is outside of, you know, our work with cucurbita and, and squash bees, is that a lot of these interactions between plants and insects are very context dependent, right? So it really sometimes depends a lot on, on who else is part of the pollinator community, who gets their first, right? Or sometimes, you know, like there could be uh, examples of local adaptation and then some populations of certain groups of bees may behave differently in one population versus the other. At the moment, it's hard to make generalizations about are bees really deciding that they like more domesticated or wild? What we understand now is that definitely flowers are different and that the bees are using these different, you know, like cues in the flowers in different ways. But that doesn't necessarily translate in, you know, like a very strong preference for one over the other. Is that sort of like clear? I, I feel like I went yeah. you know, around. <laughs> No, no, it's great. Very interesting. In talking about what you just mentioning, the communities, I have so many different types of plants growing in my garden and herbs. It's always buzzing with all different types of pollinators. And I've noticed honeybees as well, because there's a hive nearby. But I've noticed that in the cucurbit flowers, it's generally the squash bees and the bumblebees, but the bumblebees will clean themselves after when they, when they come out and they have pollen, they'll clean themselves. <laughs> so I don't think that they're collecting the pollen. <laughs> A very good observation. And, and, and this is something that, you know, as we understand more and more about these pollination systems, right. Especially for, I think for agriculture, the rule of thumb 10 or 15 years ago before we had any issues with colonies dying in the United States, right? Like there were like these rules of thumb for number of hives that you need to bring to your crop to get pollination without really understanding anything about how the bees and the plants interact. So now, for example, we know that bringing in honeybees is pretty useless for pumpkin pollination and cucurbita pollination because they are not the best pollinators, but it's really terrible for the bees. So when I work with beekeepers who have pollination contracts with pumpkin growers, they often tell me that their bees come out of that contract really weak. And in part is because depending on the landscape, of course, and all of this is very landscape, landscape dependent, but if, if all, the only thing that you have flowering is cucurbita, those hives are not going to have any source of protein and lipids, right? Like they are not going to have any pollen because they are not going to consume it. And so the outcome is, you know, a hive that looks really, really, really weak. So yeah, I guess that's kind of like a side note to you, you know, like your observation, but it is absolutely on, that's absolutely true. Honeybees and bumblebees do not consume that pollen. And if they have something else available, 
for nectar, especially honeybees, they would definitely prefer to go to something else. And, and, you know, another kind of like fascinating thing about these interaction with honeybees is that, for example, cucumbers, which are related to cucurbitum, a lineage from Asia, right? Like they're from, they were domesticated in India. Honeybees love cucumber flowers. And this is one of the, the working hypotheses for us for a lot of the work that we do in the lab is that honeybees are native from that part of the world, right? So they have longer evolutionary interactions, even though cucumbers are domesticated and have been bred outside of India for many, many, many years, there is something about that long history of relationship between, you know, like bees and plants that I think really matters for how they interact with each other. Yeah, because the evolution of squash has been going on for a lot longer than the introduction of honeybees. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Going to the bees and talking about lineages is actually quite perfect. Could you perhaps explain the phylogeny of the squash bees? Yeah, so I think that's one of the one of the recent contributions of my lab. It's something that we haven't published, but is you know currently in the works. We recently worked on developing a robust phylogeny with a good number of molecular markers for the squash bees. So even though I shouldn't say in the United States, but in more like northern states of the U.S. and in Canada, we mostly hear about this one species. Squash bees are really, at least we're talking about 22 different uh, species, right? And they are divided in two subgenera. Pepinapis is one. So now the, the, the whole group is in the genus Eusera. There was a recent change in the classification. So one genus is Pepinapis and the other one is Xenoglossa. And uh, Xenoglossa is a smaller, it has a smaller number of species. They tend to be more species rich in like desert areas, drawing a lot of parallels between the history of the plants and the history of the bees. We also have a, a lineage of cucurbita that is adapted to desert. So that seems to be the case with, you know, these squash bees. And then the subgenus Pepinapis is more species rich, and it is the lineage that actually, you know, uh, was able to colonize South America. So in South America, we have three species of uh, squash bees that are native from South America, and the highest diversity of the squash bees, guess where it is? In Mexico, right, where the highest diversity of the plants um, is also found. So there, there are a lot of patterns that are, you know, similar between the bees and the plants, we are still unsure about, you know, like how they directly impacted each other's evolutionary history. Of course, there is some correlation, but at the moment we can draw a lot of like parallels and look at, you know, overall patterns between the two groups. Fascinating. How has your research used genetics to trace the movements of range expansion of Pepinapus brunosa? Yeah, I guess something that I I was going to say before and I didn't is that because of this close evolutionary history between the plants and the bees, right, uh, before humans had anything to do with how they interact, before we were cultivating plants and taking them outside of their native range, the, the geographic distribution of squash bees and cucurbita was a lot more restricted, right? So we don't really have native cucurbita 
in like northern areas of North America. But what happened is that as humans started domesticating cucurbita and then bringing them outside of their native geographic range and cultivating them outside, what happened is that squash pieces started moving with the cultivated plants. And so for a long time, we had these hypotheses that, for example, the current distribution of Eusera prinosa is really the result, the direct outcome of humans moving the plants, you know, like outside of the native range. So we have been using genetics to have a better understanding. Well, the first question was like whether or not there is a signature of a recent geographic range expansion in the bees. But also questions like, when did that happen, right? Like, is that really the result of humans moving plants or not? And then we're moving into uh, some more functional questions to understand what is the meaning of that expansion in range for the bees? Because they, of course, you know, like the environments are very different in southwest of the U.S. and then, you know, like southern Canada, but the bees have gone through, you know, like that journey. So yeah, we basically just use genetic markers and we have been looking at whether the patterns of genetic diversity support these hypotheses of range expansion. And indeed, that's very clearly what we find. Basically, as populations start expanding or colonizing new areas, uh, what you expect to see is a founder effect, right? So there are fewer individuals that are kind of like moving on to these empty environments. And when that process happens repeatedly, what you see is a reduction in genetic diversity. And this is exactly what you see with squash bees in the Northeast of, of the U.S. and in other areas of the U.S. where wild cucurbita are not native. So um, that has been kind of like our uh, use of genetics. And the more recent results are really interesting because we're starting to understand kind of like more adaptively how these expansion has shaped, you know, like the phenotypes of the bees. So we're finding differences, for example, in their olfaction the populations from the Northeast are different from the populations in the, in the Southwest. We're finding a lot of interesting differences in, for example, genes associated with color of their bodies, right? So there are a lot of massive changes that we're seeing in the genomes, and we're just starting to understand what that means for their phenotype, how they look, and how they behave. I find it fascinating that there are no native cucurbita here. So they've been entirely dependent on what has been provided by humans. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's interesting because the other thing that we have that we now understand, right, is that what we call Eusera penipisprinosa is actually likely a complex of a species. And this is something that taxonomists, like 50 years ago, before we had any genetics available, they would describe, they would see these, you know, like bees of different colors and, you know, shapes. And, and now we know that there are five different lineages within Prinosa. And the interesting thing is that these diversification started before humans had anything to do with the history of the bee. But then some of the more recent diversification, you know, kind of like coincides with movements by humans. So 
genetically that are a lot of interesting things. One of them, for example, is that this expansion to the west and to the east has led to populations that are virtually different species. Like their genomes are so different that if we didn't have the middle of the continent area where they are intermixing with each other, the two extremes are virtually completely differentiated from a genetic perspective. So it's, yeah, it's very, very interesting. <laughs> yeah. And yet they they are still dependent on the domestic. Yeah, absolutely. So food source for their young. But you know, if you travel, if you ever travel to the, the West Coast, you go to a garden and open a cucurbit flower, the prunosa there look completely different. They are totally blonde and they don't have these pattern that we are more used to in the Northeast, that is the dark abdomen and the white stripes, the bees look very different. And I mean, genetically they are, but they are all connected in the center of the distribution because there there is some gene flow going on. I guess that helps with keeping the diversity of the genetics. There's less issues with inbreeding, possibly. Yeah. So I think that it's really puzzling because even though, as I was saying before, the range expansion has led to founder effects that have reduced genetic diversity, it is unclear if that reduction of genetic diversity is having any impact on the stability of the populations. They seem to be doing fine in California, in in the Northeast of the U.S. and Southern Canada, these bees are very abundant, right? Like if you have a cucurbita, you'll find them there. They find the plants. But yeah, it's interesting because definitely when we just look at a comparison of, or, you know, the, the levels of heterozygosity, the levels of genetic diversity that are orders of magnitude of differences between the ancestral range and where the bees have expanded. And it is way more severe in the West, actually. The the bees, the populations in the West have very, very, very low genetic diversity, but they seem to be doing fine. So it's, yeah, it's still an open, you know, like question. It's an enigma. How are they dealing with that? And something else, they're, they're still expanding their range. They're still being found in new parts of the U.S. But something that I was wondering about is how modern day cultivation practices are affecting the bees because they nest in the ground and tillage is a very common practice. So how is it that they're thriving? It's a puzzling question. I I think what I have learned from these, you know, like system is that even though there are a lot of stressors for bees currently, and this is why we hear so much about bee decline and concerns about losses of a species and abundance of, of pollinators. I think what this system can tell us is that if you have a good food resource for the bees, the other stressors may be less of a concern, right? And so that's not to say that other farm managements cannot impact the bees negatively. And I would I will follow up on that in a second, but Clearly, what you know has happened with these bees, with these species, is that the floral resource is so abundant that 
they basically don't have any problems establishing and finding food to rear more babies for the next generation. I mean, I don't know if uh, everyone would agree with that statement, but this is something that I keep thinking about. One lesson from these species that they are exclusively living in agricultural areas in a big chunk of their distribution. And these areas seem to be, you know, having very abundant numbers of them. So if you have the food, likely the bees are going to be doing okay. That doesn't mean that other things cannot be bad for the bees, right? So there was a very nice study coming out recently from university, from Wealth, where they actually looked at how common pesticides like neonics impact the nesting behavior of the bees. And what we see is that concentrations that are commonly used by growers in Ontario actually can have pretty negative effects on the nesting behavior of squash bee females, right? So we know that that's something that is going to negatively impact the bees. The information that we have for tillage is a little bit contradicting because some studies have found that, you know, there is no effect. There are some studies that have found that there is a negative effect. But anecdotally, I can tell you that from my fieldwork, I have found the largest nest aggregations in farms where rotation has been minimized and where tillage is not a huge part of their, you know, management practices. So again, I think in the greater scheme of things, these are things that probably are less important than having a reliable food resource. But if you are growing in your garden squash and you want to enhance the population of squash bees, definitely, you know, like some suggestions would be to minimize the use of pesticides and minimize tillage and make sure that the bees are going to have a reliable food resource year after year. I've heard of some places where they do have quite a lot of squash that because of the incredible pest pressure, even though they're using insecticide, they will rotate the location of their crops. So that would mean that the soil wouldn't be tilled the next year. So that would preserve the nests as well. Yeah. And I think that the the key aspect with crop rotation is that the distance of the cucurbita crop that you're growing the following year is going to be nearby. Right. So, for example, we have this grower in Pennsylvania. Basically, he has two fields and he rotates them one year in one field and the other year in the other field. And so you're right. The bees nest uh, on the edges, but they have this kind of very reliable source of food year after year, even when they are doing these rotation. So, yeah, it is possible to do rotation and help with pest management because it is important for pest management that also helps you reduce the need for pesticides and still, you know, maintain a healthy squash bee population. A question that I had just, I'm not sure that it's going to be answerable, but I was curious why Papanapis prunosa is the only one that has moved outside of its range. Well, it is not the only one. It is the most common one. There is another species that we actually have found more abundant this year, which is Cynoglossus strenuum. 
I don't think it gets up to Canada, but we do have it in, you know, like in Pennsylvania, for example. And so the numbers are, you know, like usually you rarely see these species. It's more common in the southern states, but definitely this is another species that basically part of their range coincides with areas that only have cultivated cucurbita. And a third species is another Cynoglossa, Cynoglossa consensus, that is a species that, you know, doesn't make it that far east, but definitely, again, you know, it has expanded its range outside of the native uh, range of cucurbita. And there is another species in South America, Eusera peponitis fervens, that has actually also expanded its range, likely with the result of cultivation. So it's not only prunosum. The question of why, <laughs> that's something that, yeah, we, you know, one of our working hypotheses is that they, they may have a broader thermal tolerance that may make them more likely to tolerate the cold conditions of more northern climate. So I have a student currently working on thermal tolerance of the squash bees still kind of in the works, but it is a very interesting questions. You're getting, you know, like really interesting and difficult questions because we don't have answers to those yet. (laughs) It's exciting because they might be coming. (laughs) But that kind of leads me into the the last question is your lab is, is amazing and fascinating the work that's being done. Would you like to share anything about your lab? Yeah, well, thank you. I guess we as a lab, we work on different aspects of bee evolutionary ecology. This squash bee cucurbita system is something that we are heavily studying for a number of reasons. And I hope that people listening to this podcast are, you know, like as fascinated as we are with the system. For this squash bee cucurbita system, we are not only studying how domestication has impacted the plants and the interaction between the plants and the bees, but also how this range expansion has changed functional phenotypes of of the bees. So we are looking a lot at sensory biology in how, for example, the antenna of uh, these bees responds differently to different types of cultivated and wild cucurbita plants. We are also studying different aspects of thermal biology of squash bees. And something that is more kind of like relevant for bee conservation is related to how thermal stress and pathogens can actually interact negatively to have negative fitness effects on squash bees. So there are several themes and they kind of like all intersect in this area of, you know, how crops and bees are interacting in agricultural areas and what is the meaning of that for the stability of bee populations. And we also do some work with with honeybees. Honeybees are you know, like it's a, an interesting system because unlike the cucurbita squash bee system where the plants have been domesticated, in this case, the bees have been domesticated. It's, it's interesting to draw that parallel, but how the feralization of honeybees, right? Like how these bees that used to be in boxes and then they 
colonize the wild? How is it that they are doing it? You know, what does it mean for these bees to, you know, like live outside of um, human management? How does that impact their interactions with pathogens and, you know, their survival? So yeah, this theme of interactions with, you know, human domestication is an important one in the lab. That's amazing. Well, thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you. I hope to speak to you again. Thank you. This was uh, really fun. And I guess, I, I don't know if you can share my information. If anyone has questions about squash bees or cucurbita, I would be happy to answer them. And I, I invite everyone to check out our booklet that is available free online for download if you're interested in learning more about the ecology and the history of squash bees and cucurbita. Excellent. Send me any information I'll include in the show notes. Okay. Thanks again. <laughs> Thank you for listening. As mentioned, links are in the show notes. If you want to connect, head over to CarmenPorter.com.